In this session, Adam Brown from Stanford University, who's also Senior Fellow at Foresight, Chris Kemp from Astra, Christine Peterson, who co-founded Foresight, Gaia Dempsey from Metaculus, and Robin Hansen from George Mason University, who's also a Foresight Senior Fellow, discuss the far future in space tech tree. They discuss both space and long-termism. And with long-termism, I really mean long. I think you can hear that from the panel. This is again another view behind the scenes at Fawcett's Vision Weekend in the US 2021. If you enjoy this podcast, then perhaps you also want to check out the YouTube video because that contains the slides to the tech trees that they're referencing. We'll be starting with a few very far out tech trees. And so basically what we'll be doing over um, now is we will have uh, this be a plot device for our speakers to tell you what's happening in their area. The first one is the new one, and it's the very, very far out future. Uh, it is. It, it includes space. It includes all of the individual things that you guys may be working on, and it includes better scientific tools to make them happen. Okay? All right. So let's start with the first one, which is... Okay, Robin, you go first. So my question to you, Robin, as we're having your technology slide already up there... What are you working on? What is an exciting goal in your area? What capabilities do we need to unlock? Um, and what's an exciting challenge we should be solving? Give us your little pitch. Hello. Can you hear me? Okay. I'm an economics professor who for the last year went back to an old topic of the great filter. And I was able to actually estimate numerical parameters for the great filter, in which case... Uh, the claim is that we actually now have a simple statistical model that gives you the distribution of aliens in space-time, and therefore our future. And in the context of that, it made me reflect on what is the most likely obstacle that would prevent us from becoming one of these grabby aliens, a successful species that spreads out in the universe and ends up joining the other ones and perhaps earning their respect. And my best guess for the biggest obstacle there would be because people here decide they don't want to risk the division and competition that would result from that expansion. That is, in the next few centuries, we will slowly continue to increase scale of governance as we have for the last few centuries, and people will come to appreciate and feel strongly bonded by the fact that a large, powerful world government governance has solved many global problems, including reducing war, global warming, etc. They will have such an, a strong emotional bond and, and and gratitude and feeling of loyalty to this world government that will appear over the next few centuries, that when we finally reach the possibility of sending colonies to other star systems at a substantial speed, they will know that at that point, if they allow that to happen, that will be the end of their era of cooperation and centralized governance. At that point, it will be a return to competition, war, and, and various kinds of inefficiencies, and they might not allow that. And I think that's actually the biggest scenario under which we would not expand and become the vast potential that we could. And that's the grand vision I want to highlight for you. So the key technologies there are eventually we'll be able to have this technology to expand out at a substantial fraction of the speed of light to expand. At that point, we would probably be a solar system-wide species, but still with a pretty strong central government because that's possible within a solar system. Uh, we would also have new technologies of loyalty or surveillance or political officers to allow a central government to enforce its will. And at that point, they would be tempted to use those technologies to, to prevent expansion or at least ensure that, ex that colonists were very loyal and followed the rules. 
And um, that's this conflict I want to present for you as a long term. It's not nothing new. So according to my Grabby Aliens model estimate, uh, alien, you know, civilizations like us appear roughly once per million galaxies. <laughs> we would meet them in roughly a billion years. And so what's at stake here is if we don't expand, uh, then our space near us for the nearest billion light years for the next billion years would then be empty and have much less life. But eventually, alien life would fill it anyway. So uh, life in the, in the universe isn't what's at stake. It's our kind of life, our descendants. And will we choose to go expand and become much bigger, though at the expense of allowing competition and various kinds of destructive competition uh, as the cost of our joining the gods, <laughs> the you know, grand civilizations that will fill the universe in the next billion years or so. Uh, and then if we do that, will we earn their respect? Will we be worthy of it? I think that's a worthy goal. Well done, Robin. Thank you very much. Um, and next one up, we have, let's see, Adam Brown. Adam, what is your fault slide there? When I told you Christine has a pretty fault one, you're like, nope, mine is further out. <laughs> yeah, I, thank you, uh, Robin, uh, for that. <clears throat> Uh, vision of billion years into the future. My concern is somewhat more long-term. Um, I'm a theoretical physicist, um, and my uh, tech tree concerns, I think, what is perhaps unrecognized as the single worst news that humanity ever received, which happened in 1997-1998 when we discovered the cosmological constant. Um, and that was a very bad day for our long-term prospects, Because the cosmological constant, uh, sometimes called vacuum energy, says that uh, the universe is expanding and will continue to expand, if it is indeed constant, at an accelerated rate. Um, and that means that uh, all of that lovely galaxies we see out there, many of them we will never uh, come to know, and they will fall over our cosmic horizon, and we will never be able to harness them. Um, and, and that's actually sort of a somewhat urgent problem in the sense that uh, already in 2021, Dozens of galaxies are already gone forever, essentially, if the laws of physics are as we understand them. Um, whereas if they wasn't true, one could uh, aspire to uh, capture all of the energy uh, in our future light cone, which would be infinite if it wasn't for, for this. So that this is, you know, are we just going to be a sort of flash in the pan uh, who's going to come and then eventually have a heat death? Or are we, in fact, going to be able to have an enduring civilization that will uh, live forever? Um, but there's perhaps a hopeful aspect to this, which is actually, according to our best laws, the cosmological constant is not exactly constant or need not be exactly constant. Um, according to our best understanding of qu quantum gravity, as, as we currently understand it, it's early days, but if you believe uh, string theory or some of these other theories of quantum gravity, actually the, the cosmological constant should be manipulatable by uh, our descendants. Uh, and one could, in fact, uh, manipulate it and it And it actually turns out from being very bad news to being very good news. If we could learn to manipulate it uh, and bleed off the cosmological constant, we can, in fact, uh, not only uh, reverse this loss, but, in fact, extract energy directly from the cosmological constant and extract free energy forever. All right. Well, I still remember in our recent intelligent cooperation group meeting when Robert um, um, gave uh, his intelligent... Uh, so Robin gave um, actually a talk on gravy aliens in one of the first intelligent corporation meetings. Then Andrew Sandberg came for the very far future and uh, Robin and Adam joined too. So if you're interested in following up more on these thoughts, that's a really good, I think, an interesting video to watch. Are there any 
comments, questions already from the audience. Anything that sticks that doesn't stick. Um, can we have a mic runner so that the next time I go around, we have a few participant comments as well in case you want to chime in. Um, okay. I think we still have, should I? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we can. Okay. Let's go with Christine next. So Christine, tell us a little bit about your long, long, long term future here, please. Will you? Okay, great. So uh, as you see, I was unable to follow the rules. That's why I fit in here at Foresight. Allison said we can be ourselves. We are allowed to be ourselves. Okay. So um, on the left, we have AI and AGI. I'm not uh, claiming here where we need to be on that axis. Um, the things on the left are things that Foresight is already working on. These are areas that we feel are catalysts for the next stage Uh, what we need to see are things like molecular machine systems, another of our groups. Um, startup cities technology, I think, is, um, is critical in being able to organize the next level up. Um, I think we will be getting rejuvenation technologies, and I'm throwing cryonics in there as an, as an addition. Uh, these things come, in my mind, at about the same time. With our, with that level of technology, especially the molecular machine systems, we can do planet repair, which I include, uh, climate repair, uh, and general cleanup. So this is the stage where we get solar system settlement and solar power satellites. And I say here lots. Obviously we could do solar power satellites today, uh, but uh, we'll need them there and not necessarily to beam power to earth, but for the solar, solar, um, For the solar system settlements, they're going to need a lot of solar power. And then, uh, this is a little hard to read, but over on the right, uh, we, at that point, I, th I think uploading is going to be really hard, which is why it's over on the right. We have the new tech panel next to prove you wrong. I, I will, I would love to be proved wrong. I would totally love it. Um, and also at that stage, I'm expecting to see advanced brain-computer interfaces, which I think also are going to be hard, but also would love to be proved wrong again. Obviously, we're working on it already. It's not that we don't, we won't have them. I want really good ones. And then off on the right, we have interstellar expansion, which I had thought was an ambitious goal, but apparently there are more ambitious goals that I wasn't even envisioning. So that's, uh, that's how I see it playing out. Thank you, Christine. You really also went all the way out. Glad to see. Um, okay. Well, I think that one thing that I already want you all, uh, all of you guys to think about, even on the panel here, is like, how do your slides interrelate? Once we have them up on the whiteboard, we'll be moving things about. Maybe one of them is the enabling technology for one else. Maybe one of you guys is working on a part of the thing to make the entire thing real. Are there any questions, objections already to what you heard? Guys, chime in here. Oh, we have an objection already. Great. Robert, uh, as you talk about the uh, glorious side of your dichotomy, where we don't have a world government, we expand into space, and we compete, uh, I think that there is a really important distinction uh, uh, between violent, involuntary competition, destructive war, versus uh, voluntary uh, competition to cooperate. And the... The dynamic that causes our diverse, uncontrolled civilization to grow into something that, that we're proud of, uh, is, 
that growth happens much more directly and much better under systems of voluntary cooperation. The, the warlike things can have a winner-takes-all dynamic that causes things to simplify into a very bad state that we can't escape from. Uh, so uh, I, wa- I want you to just want, wanted to see if you have a comment on that distinction on that side of your overall dichotomy. Hello. Some people have advocated a long reflection where they say, when we can expand, we shouldn't. We should wait thousands or millions of years and really think about it so that we go out there, we do it right. And we don't do it destructively. We do it cooperatively with the right sort of, you know, guarantees that the conflict will be uh, voluntary and not violent. Um, That's a perfectly reasonable argument, but I'm terribly afraid (laughs) that waiting a million years means it never happens. And so uh, I am very concerned about that there are completely reasonable arguments to say, let's not go now, let's wait until we can achieve and master these forms of cooperation that can be managed over enormous spatial scales and time scales. And if we wait for those, we may never stop waiting. Yeah, clear. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for asking the question, Mark. I was feeling the same way. Um, To Robin or anyone really, I mean, do we want to inject a dose of realism here? And what I mean by that is, uh, what are the chances that we would wait a million years or even 10 years? Everybody has to wait. There's a, what do they call that? There's like a, a defection if anybody defects, they get first mover advantage. And, and I just, I worry that sometimes, I mean, I'm an optimist, but I worry that we, the rose-colored glasses are kind of a little too rosy around here some of the times, and we might be better off being our own critics about some of these super optimistic situations rather than uh, waiting for outsiders to criticize us and make us look f- foolish. I think if we go back in Forsyth's history to nanotechnology, uh, there's a lot to be learned there. There was so much optimism and boosterism. It has taken the world quite a while to catch up, and had we been our our own finest critics, uh, it might have gone a little more smoothly. Any comments, questions? Okay, good. Uh, all right. Then next one up, we have Gaia. And Gaia is taking us all the way out to how do we do better science and do they actually matter tools to make this all happen? Thanks. I feel like, uh, some suddenly the, the topics that I'm going to talk about in, in my session are, um, super short term compared <laughs> compared to some of the time scales uh that have that have been brought out already um so i i will humbly submit uh some proposals for building technologies that can start to um utilize the best tools that we currently have at our disposal for making better judgments for making better decisions and for doing so collectively um, and really um, uh, co- collecting all of the insights and perspectives uh, across broader and broader groups of people. And, and we know through 
um, the last several decades of forecasting science that when you aggregate insights across large groups of people, you tend to, on average, get a much better signal uh, that's more accurate uh, when you're looking for predictions about the future. So um, that's what we work on at Metaculus. We, cr- we have a platform that uh, invites a global reasoning community to participate um, in asking and answering questions about about the future. Uh, we do have some questions about the heat death of the universe. And, and so there's, <laughs> we do have some, you know, we, we think, we do think, um, long-term, medium-term by the standards of this group. Okay. <laughs> uh, but we also do a lot of work, um, uh, currently around the translation of the insights that can be produced using these techniques into actionable policy recommendations that we can act on right away. And so I think it's really important to bridge uh, culturally with the decision-making processes that we have today. I'd like us to arrive. I'd like us to get to this very long-term future where we can populate the, the, the universe and, and, uh, and, um, live amongst the stars. Um, and I'd, I'd like to, um, uh, today work on some tools that can help us kind of bridge our, uh, our, our current challenges. Um, so just a, one kind of, um, analogy is around, uh, modeling. So modeling now we've, especially in the last 18 months has become a topic of conversation for every public health agency in the world and not just every public health agency in the world, but even, you know, it, newspapers, everyday conversations, um, uh, where, you know, we're, we're, um, we have, I think, uh, uh, undergone a huge education process where modeling has become, you know, something that we all rely on. And if you look back 15 years ago, modeling was not something that was utilized as much in public health and in, uh, public policy and decision making. And we've seen this transition where it, it is now a fundamental tool that we know, um, helps us to make better decisions. And so, uh, what I'm working on now is this novel model to forecasting pipeline where we use all of the, uh, empirical grounding of forecasting science, um, which is uniquely sort of related to the ideas of neural networks and machine learning that we can optimize for accuracy and we can get better and better, more and more accurate over time as we collect more data, um, more observations, uh, and more insights and applying these tools into the modeling process and then con- connecting um, all the way through to um, policy tools and a feedback cycle that allows us to be more transparent, more accountable, more reliable in our policy and decision-making. Lovely. And we have Anthony here as well, who co-founded Metaculus. And we have a question already from Jazir. Jazir, you go for it. Hi. Um <clears throat> So Gaia, um, as a crypto guy, I hear often that prediction markets are going to be used in crypto, either to bet directly or for governance. But I'm wondering, like, to what degree is, um, Metaculus actually used for any kind of like, uh, hedge fund guidance or bank guidance or anything in like predictive markets that are actually like, you know, deploying real capital? Great question. So um, I would say that today we are a little bit of like a, um, an intellectual playground for people who do, who in their day jobs do work in hedge funds and are in, you know, in quantitative finance. Um, we have a, um, 
I think a broader set of interests in terms of the types of forecasting questions that we tackle, um, rather than sort of, uh, some of the, uh, sort of, um, you know, narrower band of, 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 uh, economic or, or, um, or financial forecasting that you might see in, in some of those groups. Um, so in that sense, I think that the, the methodology and the technologies uh, are very appealing in these communities. And there's a, there's a sense of, um, there's a, there's a cultural kind of connection there. Um, we, uh, have done a, our first couple of sort of, um, simple, basic blockchain integrations in the last year. So we're kind of exploring a little bit in that space. And I, I should say that, you know, there are some great, uh, crypto prediction markets out there. Metaculous is not a prediction market. We're a, we are a forecasting platform that works a little bit differently than a market. Um, we incentivize forecasting through tournaments. Uh, so I'd love to continue this, um, yeah, in the, in the session. Great line of questioning. All right. Lovely. Thank you so much. Um, okay, good. Now we have a few more space slides up and running. So um, now that we've have a few enabling technologies of how we can actually do better science to get there, let's see if they can bump up the space technologies that Creon and Chris are actively working on. So Creon, uh, is this your slide? Yes. Okay, then you go first. What are you working on? What's out there? And what do you need? Well, I'm not exactly working on what I've talked about here, but it is in my mind a lot, and it relates to what I'm working on, which is kind of more traditional uh, space activities. Uh, I guess to bundle it all together, what I'm hoping to find and what I haven't found, so I'm putting this out there if anyone wants to brainstorm about it or has any great ideas, <clears throat> is this. We have a lot of long-term future visions about space, like settling the solar system and beyond, and multiplanetary species and all this kind of thing. And we have certain near-term activities which are going on in space and frankly have been pretty much the only activities that have been profitable in space for uh, almost my entire lifetime. Those activities would be communication satellites, earth observation satellites, military satellites, and a certain amount of just pure science so using space satellites and space probes. Um, but to bridge this gap between what's been going on for, say, 50 years as a sustainable economic space activity, which is mostly stuff in Earth orbit and a few science missions that are beyond Earth orbit, <laughs> to bridge that gap between these traditional space activities and the future visions that people have of uh, multiplanetary species that at least uh, span some of our solar system, it, we need some kind of economic pathway, some set of some way to connect these two very, some way to bridge this gulf and bridge the sort of technology valley of death. Like what are some things we can do along the way that will bring uh, economic or some sort of returns to those who do them? Um, I, I fortunately think solar power satellites are, that it just doesn't close economically, not by orders of magnitude. It would be nice if that was a thing that would help us bridge this gap. But I think, I think it's just 
completely untenable. We can argue about that, but but something something like that. I same thing with like ask. Uh, I I just want to no. I want to people to. I want us to try and figure out intermediate things between the traditional stuff we've been doing in space and the stuff we envision, you know, in hundreds of years. Uh, there's a gap. There's a gulf. We need to fill that. And so uh, I hope that these great brain trust here can help us work on that. Chris, do you have any ideas there? <clears throat> well, speaking about that gulf. So I think, I think the ideas here uh, are you know, economy is just a way for us humans to measure the things that are working and not working. Uh, if something uh, is not economically viable, it's to say that it doesn't create enough value, right? And there, there's not enough margin in it to continue its uh, investing in it and continue doing it. And so I think one of the ways I frame this is, you know, if, if you want to see uh, sustainable, uh, sustainably thriving human civilization on earth, you know, we should, we should try to figure out how to be sustainably thriving here before we go and try to do it on Mars, right? Cause it's pretty easy to do here. You know, there's a lot of energy here. There's a lot of, uh, you know, we don't have to, you know, terraform earth just to, to make it a place where we can walk around. And so if you think about the enabling technologies to make that happen, um, you know, and, and to really take advantage of, of the earth as an organism, um, you know, first of all, you've got to be able to get, you've got to be able to connect things on earth. You've got to be able to understand what's happening on earth. And, you know, satellites are a great way to do that. You know, there's a, if you, if you put communication satellites in earth orbit, you can pretty much connect every object, whether it's a device or a car or a person or a phone or whatever uh, on the planet very efficiently, right? Cause it's all about, um, it's all about efficiency. Uh, we can't go put fiber optic networks and cell phone towers on every square kilometer of the planet. You have a line of sight from space down to everything on Earth, which is kind of cool. Um, also, we disagree on this point, but, you know, there's this great thermonuclear reactor that, you know, is hovering. Um, if we absorb the energy that's hitting Earth, um, either after it's made it through the atmosphere or in space and beam it back down to Earth, that's pretty cool. And so the solar technologies and, um, you know, basically uh, energy generation and storage becomes really important. So if we can efficiently... Uh, convert either energy from the sun or use other material on earth to um, harvest and store energy. That's pretty important. And then there's RF. So the ability to uh, take the sensing that we're doing and move it to the places where we're making sense of it all. Um, so it's flipping bits, moving bits, and then to, to flip bits, to store bits, uh, and to move bits, you need energy, right? And so it's all kind of comes together. So, you know, my field is space tech, right? And so uh, the kind of key capabilities that I think space tech enables are connectivity, uh, sensing, and power, right? So uh, it's, a, it's a, you know, if we've been as a civilization, human civilization, climbing to the tops of mountains and building uh, observatories and telescopes and uh, radio towers and things like that, because, you know, if you climb to the highest mountain, it's a great place to see everything. It's a great place to put a tower, a radio tower and connect everything. Space is like the ultimate high ground. So if you can put satellites in space, you have uh, a whole lot of power up there uh, and you have line of sight to be able to image, sense, uh, and or connect uh, pretty much anything uh, below, depending on how high you are. Um, and then sensing technologies, like we're already seeing the CO2 methane satellites so we can understand at increasingly higher levels of fidelity, 
uh, how much uh, CO2 is this factory producing, this country, this road, this city. So that allows us as humans to, to implement policy and hold people accountable to things that are healthy and you know, balance the economics of what we're trying to do here. And then, of course, you need power to do it all. So the ability to either on orbit or here on Earth um, uh, convert matter into energy or absorb energy that is hitting the planet and store it is kind of important. And so, again, the end goal for me and for, you know, my project is kind of intermediate. It's, you know, I'm not so concerned about settling another planet. I'm not so concerned about the heat death of the universe. I'm kind of concerned about, you know, how do we create a sustainably thriving human civilization here on Earth? And then we can go beyond. All right. So if I wanted humanity to grow as fast and as big as possible in the long run, there'll probably be some optimal time for an optimal amount of space investment and and expansion. We could either do it too early or too late. Do we know it's too late now? (laughs) Maybe it's too early. Um, you were, it looked like you were looking at me when you asked this. I, I don't, I think I might be on the, um, I don't know whether it's too early or too late to invest. What I think is, what I'm trying to say is too early as I think the things that, for instance, Chris is talking about, these are the traditional things, communications, sensing this, we've been doing this in space for 50 years and sure we could do, you know, 10 or a hundred times more and it might be great for our thriving civilization. But in terms of going the next level, like you're talking about, like the expansion part, the part that Chris was kind of leaving off the table, you know, which I think is a valid perspective. Like let, you know, we want to keep our house in order. We want to, we want to thrive here. But in terms of the expansion part, um, I think it's too early to invest in because there's nothing to invest in yet. There's, we don't have, since we don't have the, yeah, we agree. I, so, so this is what I'm wondering is like, you know, look, let's say money was no problem. You know, what could we actually do that would make sense? Um, well, if money was no problem, we might make so, solar power satellites. Cause, but, but I mean, I, I'm looking, well, I don't need to repeat myself. Ben Reinhardt, maybe you want to make the point again that you made to me yesterday about we need to build things that are... Can you give him the mic? Um, my, my, my point, what I would argue is that what you need to do in order to have useful space technology is make it dual purpose. And the primary purpose needs to be here on Earth because at the end of the day, there is no market in space yet. Um, and so I've, there's like, you look at NIAC proposals and work that's been done there. And there's been so much amazing work done on space only technology that just sits on shelves because there's no, there's no pull for it. Um, and so that's, that was the only point that I was making to Allison is like, if you really want to build space technology, it needs to be useful on earth first. Um, and this is coming from someone who literally did their PhD in space robotics. So I'm not like, a negative Nancy on space. Uh, it's just, I think that that's the pragmatic way to do it. Right. Do you agree? Yeah, I get a thumbs up here from Chris. Yep, lots of thumbs up. 
Okay, any final words here on this panel? No? So the next thing up is we will get all of you after the next session and the break, we'll get all of your technology slides up on the whiteboard. And then in the breakouts in the afternoon, we'll move things around to bits and pieces and we'll see if you can actually help each other a bit. And in the afternoon, we'll also have an enabling tools session, mostly focused on nanotech tools. So maybe the uh, metaculous focus slide can even go up on there. I have a feeling there will be a good connection there. Okay, everyone. Thank you so, so much for the first panel. Thanks you so, so much for joining. Fantastic. We really took it, I think, all the way out there. Um, okay. Without further ado, thanks a lot, guys. Um, we will have your technology slides up here. And at 4 p.m. today, you guys get to shine because then we'll be moving your things up along the slide. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Foresight Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit foresight.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>